0: following content is provided by Mythgard Institute. Mythgard, making scholarly discussion of fantasy and science fiction literature free and open to everyone. Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is our fifth and final session on out of the silent planet by cs lewis sorry i'm a little bit later than usual uh it's one thing you know that happens as a consequence of uh me broadcasting these every week you know spending two at least two nights a week uh broadcasting is that all these things you know come up <laughs> like basically you guys have to just kind of live with my life the way that it's normally lived and in this case i had uh household repairs i was upstairs with a drill and a sledgehammer until about 20 minutes ago so i've been kind of scrambling but all set i fixed it it should be good now (laughs) anyway such is such is the life um all right uh, yeah, Arthur, that's exactly how Fanore got started. That's that's just it. I'd like to think that I'm on exactly the same trajectory. I comfort myself with that pleasant idea. <laughs> yeah. Uh, exactly. Yeah. No, David, the sledgehammer was completely salutary. It wasn't only uh, for my own uh, psychological well-being. I mean, there's, there's nothing like a good sledgehammer, you know, when things are really frustrating. But, no, it was good. It was good. Things... Uh, things it was actually required uh and it was it was nice um so uh yeah no problem no problem um it was yeah you oh know, so at uh, devore it was somebody's bed which is the problem like it could, it's why i couldn't wait because i needed to I needed to fix it uh so uh yeah you know fix it before bedtime which is pretty much now so you know there we go okay yeah, exactly, Brian. Today bed slats, tomorrow silmarils. That's I think pretty much the trajectory uh that I'm uh, that I'm on. All right. Well, without further delay, then let us move forward into uh Meldalorn. We had just gotten to Meldalorn last time. Uh and um Last time we we were mostly talking about Ransom's time with the Sorns. Last week we were, and the week before that we were looking at Ransom's time's, time with the Hrossa. Uh, now this week we're going to look at his time in Meldalorn, and especially, of course, the big sort of trial uh, before Oyarsa uh, there at the end. Um, so, um, yeah, Jennifer, y- you're right. Uh, Ransom being carried on on Augury's uh, on shoulders... Uh, is a lot like, uh, Pippin and Mary on the shoulders of Treebeard. Um, yes, predates it, predates it. So, uh, if there's a likeness, it's, uh, it's the other way around. I don't know that I would necessarily argue for a likeness. Um, uh, that is for an actual borrowing there. But, uh, but Algray, Algray is, uh, is pre-Treebeard by, uh, uh, a, a substantial bit of time. But, um, anyway... Um. All right. Um. Yeah, yeah. David, and we do get to meet a fiffle triggy, uh, or a fiffle trig, which is, I think, the singular. Um. Yes, and it is kind of too bad, isn't it? Right. I mean, it would have been really fun uh, to get to go see the land of the fiffle triggy. Um. It's interesting, actually, that Lewis seems to have. I mean, so he could have done that, right? He could have taken us to the to the land of the fiffle triggy. Um, that would have been a little bit more. I don't know what. Um, a little bit more. Uh, how shall I say, Gulliverian, right? More like Gulliver's Travels, right? Going from one land of the strange people to the other land of the different strange people. Um, if we'd gotten the tour of the Hrassa and the tour of the Sorns, and then rounded it out with the tour of the Um and I wonder if it's if it's something like that that. Uh, uh, actually deterred him, right? He didn't want it just to be a... This is not like, you know, Ransom's walking tour of Malacandra, right? He was... Uh, by not going to the land of the Fifultrigi, he maintained the sort of linear nature of the of the narrative, right? I mean, this was... He was taken in by the Hrassa, and then he had to go to Meldalorn, met the Sorns along the way, and then, you know, from Meldalorn, he was sent home by Oyarsa um, without a, you know... A, junket to Fifthrigg Land uh prior to that. Um but, but Stephen I agree. The the effect in the end is a little bit like um uh like uh like Bism all over again uh in the silver chair. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um yeah, yeah, good. And Jennifer, I there's something to be said about that. Jennifer Ewing says I like it better not seeing it at all. Just like any other tour I've been on, you don't get to see everything, right? Exactly. And um and uh I I do think it would have changed the the quality by which I don't mean good or bad, but it would have changed the nature, let me say it that way. It would have changed the nature of the story had, you know, he you know, ransom that is embarked on some kind of like anthropological tour of, of Mars. It would, uh, it would not have been the same kind of story. Um, anyway, anyway. Okay. Um, Let's uh, let's jump back into Mellow... Okay, actually, hang on. First, I almost forgot my announcement last night. I'm not going to forget it again tonight. Uh, brief announcement. Um, Mythmoot announcement. So last week, I was talking about Verlin Flieger and how she's going to be releasing her new book at Mythmoot this year. So you'll get not only the chance to, uh, to meet Verlin Flieger... Which is a big deal, but you'll also get a chance to uh, uh, to sort of t- t- to see her book first and to hear the premiere performance of uh, of, of of her play as we uh, perform that in a, re- a live readers theater performance. It's going to be very cool. But this week I have to announce um, that our second guest of honor is going to be Amy Sturgis. Amy Sturgis is a wonderful scholar and teacher. Um, those of you who have audited courses or taken courses at Signum University will probably know Amy. She uh, lectured for us for many years, um, and she's going to be at MythMoot this year. So uh, you'll get a chance to um, you'll get a chance to meet her. But uh, in addition, of course, that's kind of uh well it's actually gonna be happening at the same time as uh her new course which is sort of the other half of the amy sturgis announcement um which is that of course we're doing a revision of her star wars course amy's force of star wars course uh is one of the best courses we've offered at signum university um but it was back in i think fall of 2015 it was like the um the day that or like the Right before at the end of the semester uh, the the Force awakens came out, so it was like in anticipation uh, of the, the the third trilogy of star wars films and Needless to say there 's been quite a bit of Star Wars since that point so we uh, we kind of lured her out of uh, her signum retirement and she 's coming back to do a new live class uh, on Star Wars, looking back not only at all of the films but also uh, many of the books and and sort of the larger star wars world as well it's going it 's going to be a wonderful class so uh, that's going to run this coming summer. Uh, if you go to signumuniversity.org, you can see links to that course and the other courses uh, that we're running in this in this coming summer semester. And, of course, you'll get a chance to meet Amy at MythMoot if you're able to come to MythMoot. So, all right. Um, there's my announcement, which I didn't forget. So, let us now head back to Meldehorn. All right. So, you'll remember that... When Ransom was first meeting, especially the Hrossa, right? Uh, he was suspecting at various points that he was encountering some kind of mythology, right? Um, with the Sorns living up in the high reaches, right? And all that kind of thing. And, and uh, you know, their talk of, of uh, the Eldila and everything. You know, are these gods? What's going on? And, and a lot of it was based on the assumptions right that he was making on the the rather superior assumptions that he was making assuming that he was coming from a more sophisticated and more learned society than the Hrasa because of course he was judging them by their externals by things like their artifacts and you know their their uh, uh their apparent like you know their architecture and stuff like that um that they must be crude and that therefore they must be on a lower uh level of social development than he um uh, so um, anyway, anyway, so he's been kind of probing to figure out their mythology, but now it seems like he finally is confronting something that looks quite like it. So he's looking at the carvings uh, in the stone there on Meldalorn. The pictures were very puzzling. Side by side with representations of Sorns and Hrossa, and what he supposed to be fiveltriggy there occurred again and again an upright wavy figure, with only the suggestion of a face, and with wings. The wings were perfectly recognizable, and this puzzled him very much. Could it be that the traditions of Malacandrian art went back to that early geological and biological era, when, as Ogre had told him, there was life, including bird life, on the Harandra? The answer of the stones seemed to be yes. He saw pictures of the old red forests with unmistakable birds flying among them and many other creatures that he did not know. On another stone, many of these were represented lying dead, and a fantastic Nakra-like figure, presumably symbolizing the cold, was depicted in the sky above, shooting at them with darts. Creatures still alive were crowding round the winged wavy figure, which he took to be Oyarsa, pictured as a winged flame, On the next stone, Oyarsa appeared, followed by many creatures, and apparently making a furrow with some pointed instrument. Another picture showed the furrow being enlarged by Fifiltrigi, with digging tools. Sorns were piling the earth up in pinnacles on each side, and Hrosa seemed to be making water channels. Ransom wondered whether this were a mythical account of the making of handramets, or whether they were conceivably artificial, in fact. Okay. Um... What do we notice? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Arthur is noticing that the uh, the carved depiction of Oyarsa sounds like it's a Caduceus. <laughs> okay, something like that. Yeah, yeah. Or is it the other way around? Right. Um. Uh. Anyway, good. Um. So, what do we see here? Think back, as I said, to uh, Ransom's. Assumptions that he was making about the society of the Hrosa. Now, we've already seen that most of the assumptions he was making are quite wrong, right? Remember how he was assuming that they were on this lower social level and that they probably wouldn't know anything about civilized religion. And he was kind of thinking, like, am I going to have to... Instruct them, you know, like because uh, he's a Christian and he's like, to, uh, "Am I going to need to teach them about God and and how this works?" and and instead he finds himself being lectured like he is a cub who knows nothing. Um, and in fact, they already have a very sophisticated idea of God and uh, uh, and are way beyond the kind of primitive and uh, the primitive mythological concepts that he was ascribing to them. Right. So we've already seen uh some simple ways in which his assumptions are simply wrong but i think in these pictures we begin to see we we begin to learn something a little bit more than that more merely than the fact that his assumptions were incorrect right um stephen says i'm thoroughly impressed at his ability to get all this from pictures without text um yeah it's a fun game this this of course reminds me of 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 Lotro, and all the time that I have spent playing this game uh, in the Lord of the Rings online with my various characters running around and seeing visual art and standing and puzzling over it till I come up with a theory as to what it depicts. Um, Yeah. Um, But yeah, Devorah, you're right. He's less sure here about what is history and what is mythology, right? Um, Note that he is initially surprised by the representation of the wings, right? So he's, you know, Oyarsa, um, you know, he eventually concludes that this figure is Oyarsa, this vague, wavy line figure um, with only the suggestion of a face, right? But it's got wings. It has definite wings. And he's surprised by the wings because nothing on Malacandra has wings, right? They don't have any living model for... A winged creature. So, you know, even the fact that, you know, angels in, you know, many traditional depictions are depicted with wings. Well, at least the people who decided to depict angels that way had seen birds. Right. Uh, So there was an implicit comparison being made right just as the bird flies through the sky so the angel is in some way also uh both swift and free of movement right this seems to be what's kind of uh one of the things anyway that that seems to lie behind that particular visual symbol that uh traditional religious art has kind of seized upon right but of course the difference here which puzzles him is that there's no concrete comparison for them to latch on to. They don't have any birds. How? Why would you depict something, a winged thing, in a world where there were no birds? Or rather, where there hadn't been birds for a really, really long time, right? Because even if you could, through archaeology, say, so say the Sorns, say that we, he, we assume or he assumes that the Sorns were sufficiently accomplished archaeologists that they could uh, discover on the Harandra fossil remains of the ancient birds of the Harandra before the change to the planet, right? So there used to be uh, birds up in the forests on the Harandra, but then they all died. Um, quite likely, they left fossil remains behind. But even from fossil remains, you wouldn't necessarily figure out um, figure out uh, uh wings? Like, accurate depictions of wings? I mean, Ransom recognizes these as wings. Wings like birds. Right? And so he's wondering if the traditions of Malacandrian art go back to that earlier geological and biological era. I mean, it was a long time ago. It was before human life on Earth that this change happened on Malacandra, he was told. Right? By the Sorns, who seem to have their science pretty well down, right? Um, so again, my back to my bigger question, how does this change? How does this inform Ransom's view? Or to say the same thing a different way, how does this change our understanding of Ransom's relationship to their mythology, right? First, he was assuming that they had a crude mythology and that there was some truth that a sophisticated person could see for its plain fact, but which they only vaguely understood through mythology. That's what he was assuming was going to be happening, right? But then it turns out, no, actually, the Harasa, they have astronomy, right? They know the difference between planets and stars. They know about space. They know about uh, the the theory of space travel. They understand that there's no atmosphere in the sky. I mean, all these things that he... Assumed they wouldn't know, they know, right? So it turns out they're not ignorant of science. And yet, um, and, the, and they don't have the kind of vague uh, and uh, kind of picture-thinking mythology that he assumes that they have. And yet, but this is literally picture-thinking, right? Um, notice the, the Hanakra-like figure. Right, when they're depicting the disaster, right um, because there are pictures of the old red forest with unmistakable birds flying among them, and many other creatures he did not know. So here we have a visual representation of the ancient world, right the ancient world of in in, in Malachandra before the disaster, okay. So that already is remarkable in one way or another, right? Very remarkable historically. How would they have history this accurate? And secondly, um, if it's not, you know, how would they have reconstructed that archeological? I mean, it's remarkable one way or another, right? That they would know that. um, And then, but it's not just that. Then we see the depiction of, The dramatization of the planetary disaster that strikes Mars, that strikes Malacandra, right? The birds are represented lying dead and a fantastic Nakra-like figure, presumably symbolizing the cold, was depicted in the sky above shooting at them with darts. That sounds exactly like the kind of mythology that Ransom was looking for originally, Right? Ah, and then the great sky beast of death comes and shoots them down with his you know with the the his the, the the his cold arrows right Stephen doesn't know that it symbolizes cold; he's just sort of um guessing he's just sort of guessing right um well, not guessing theorizing let me. Be a little bit more fair about that. Um, he theorizes that because it's up in the sky, right? And again, he, what he has been told from a scientific perspective by the Sorns, right, about what happened was that um, the atmosphere of the Harandra dissipated and uh, the and the cold invaded and and everything that lived up there on the surface was killed. Um, so he is figuring that that is what is being depicted here notice he is taking it to be a symbol right um again on the one hand this is this looks exactly like the kind of mythology that he was expecting but it's not acting like it in a sense right that is to say when he first met the Harasa, he was expecting them to actually believe something like that like they really believed that there was a a big monster in the sky that shot all the birds dead right Um, or something like that. That's the kind of belief, the kind of primitive belief, uh, that he was expecting. Notice how his own expectations have already changed some, right? They've already changed to the extent that he is now already, he looks at this and he says, that must be, that must be symbolic, right? It's not, it's not literal. They don't really believe that there is a a Hanakra like figure who lives up in the sky and who actually shot all the birds dead, right? Since they are have depicted that, however, they um um they are since they have depicted that though, they therefore must be doing that it must be symbolic. They must be using symbolism. But again, as I said, this is exactly the kind of mythological image that he was expecting. In other words, he is beginning to see how they use mythology, right? Or use things that we would call mythology. Um, he was. Um, well, it's hang on a second. Are the yeah. Let me, let me look at the next one, and then I'll come back to this subject again, the subject of mythology, and how things get reversed here. Um, the next picture. Many of the pictures he could make nothing of. One that particularly puzzled him showed at the bottom a segment of a circle, behind and above which rose three-quarters of a disc divided into concentric rings. He thought it was a picture of the sun rising behind a hill, only the segment at the bottom was full of Malachandrian scenes, Oyarsa in Meldalorn, Sorns on the mountain edge of the Harandra, and many other things both familiar to him and strange. He turned from it to examine the disk which rose behind it. It was not the sun. The sun was there, unmistakably, at the center of the disk. Round this the concentric circles revolved. In the first and smallest of these was pictured a little ball, on which rode a winged figure, somewhat like Oyarsa, but holding what appeared to be a trumpet. In the next, a similar ball carried another of the flaming figures. This one, instead of even the suggested face, had two bulges, which after long inspection he decided were meant to be the udders or breasts of a female mammal. By this time he decided—yeah, by this time he was quite sure that he was looking at a picture of the solar system. The first ball was Mercury, the second Venus. And what an extraordinary coincidence, thought Ransom, that their mythology, like ours, associates some idea of the female with Venus. The problem would have occupied him longer if a natural curiosity had not drawn his eyes on to the next ball, which must represent the earth. When he saw it, his whole mind stood still for a moment. The ball was there, but where the flame-like figure should have been, a deep depression of irregular shape had been cut as if to erase it. OK, um, this is where I think, again, I wanted to bring this passage in because, of course, here we begin to come into contact with our own earthly mythology as well. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah, Curita says, what an extraordinary coincidence. Bless Ransom's heart. Yeah, Indeed. Indeed. Yes. So again, he arrives at the village of the Hrasa and assumes that they are going to have lots of mythological beliefs, which he'll know the reality behind. Right. What has turned out to be the reality instead? Notice that so many times um, notice that so many times As so many other times in this book, right, his initial assumptions, his his original uh, perspective gets almost completely reversed. It turns out that it's not the Malachandrians who have mythological beliefs, which we, in our greater knowledge, you know, someone from our culture with our greater knowledge could see through. It's the other way around. Right. Um, uh, Mercury. Tell me about Mercury. What's Mercury associated with the god Mercury? Who is he? What's his job? Exactly. He's he's the messenger. He's the announcer. He's the herald. Right. And here he finds that the figure. Right. The Oyarsa like figure which is associated with Mercury, is carrying a trumpet, and then um, Venus is associated with the female. An extraordinary, by extraordinarily extraordinary coincidence, just like our mythology, right? So here he's thinking. His assumption here is amazing. Their mythology and our mythology like agree. Why should that be? And um <laughs> Arthur says Paralandra to ransom. My eyes are up here. Yeah, exactly. Um What's the reality? The reality is that they in Melochandra know the reality behind our mythology, right? That what we have... But but again, the situation isn't merely the opposite of what he had assumed. He assumed they would have a primitive mythology that we would see through, right? But it isn't quite true to say that the thing that has turned out to be the case is that um, we have the primitive mythology that they can see through, right? That's true, in a sense, Right. Um, Our primitive mythology. um, They know the truth behind our primitive mythology. Right. But the reality, the new perspective, I think, that we and Ransom gain on the whole question of mythology. Right. um, Is not only mere reversal. It is also the idea that there is truth behind that mythology. It is not indeed a coincidence. Um, The reason that we on Earth have associated the planet Venus with the feminine and that they associate the feminine with the Oyarsa of Venus is that there is an Oyarsa of Venus who apparently... Has feminine, like, uh, there is femininity associated with like she is in fact female, and that is why, um, that myth exists. Uh, exactly, Jennifer. There is, in fact, a common truth beyond, um, beyond that, uh, mythology. Um, so again, it's not just the question of like who's the one with the primitive mythology after all, right? The point is that ransom. In looking for and essentially kind of in advance debunking mythology. It's the debunking that's the but it's not just his presumption of what he would find, and it's not just his assumption of his own superiority that ends up being untrue. It's the relationship with mythology that he finds to be wrong, to be different. And this is where I want to go back uh, to the Hanakra like figure on their depictions, right? They obviously know the history, and of course we learn it's not going to be long before we will see clearly, as he's already been told, but doesn't understand how it is that they there are th- oyarsa oh, was there right there is a there is still a living witness of these things who is telling them these stories. Uh, So this is not just down to how excellent their archaeology is, nor is it at all strange that they should know what birds are like, because those who remember the birds, those who, in fact, possibly helped shape the birds, are still there, right? Are still around and telling them these stories and refreshing their memories of these events. But it isn't only that their history is transmitted more accurately, because it's transmitted through apparently or functionally immortal memories but rather despite that they do still use what he would call mythology right they depict the cold or they depict death um or maybe they're depicting the uh uh the darko yarsa of earth um as we'll come to learn by the way that's kind of my theory um So, Stephen, I think he's wrong about the cold. I don't think it's the cold at all. Uh, I think it's Earthsoyarsa that is being depicted there as the fantastic macro like figure. So that, again, instead of being a merely... a mythological figure symbolizing the cold, it's actually... there is actually a true thing behind that, a true figure behind that. So that there is a non-literal but, uh, you know important sense in which there was a macro-like figure shooting down the birds. Um, But um, anyway, um, so, so yes, the big picture that I want to point out here is that I do think that Lewis is suggesting yes, there is truth behind this mythology all mythology in a sense that mythology is not to be rejected or seen through in the way that ransom was assuming that he would see through it um and that I okay, guess so not only is he wrong about who is actually in the know and who's not in the know uh, but he discovers that he was sort of using mythology wrong in the first place um and um anyway um uh Anyhow, um, so yes, Tomas, you're right. On that token, the Oyarsa of Malacandra should be a warrior. And yes, he is. Um, And we will see him depicted at other times uh, as bearing a sword or or holding a spear. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yes. Now let's see. Somebody was talking... Was a comment I wanted to come back to. Yes, um, Colette. Uh, 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 Colette says for sure, despite his Christian beliefs, Lewis thought that the medieval astronomy of the seven heavens had intrinsic value and interest. Absolutely, and that's not despite his Christian beliefs, really. Um, the the medieval the the medieval astronomy was uh, very well, very effectively. Um, uh, I'd integrated with Christian ideas. See, here's how the... I'm trying to go on too long of a tangent here, but uh, but I think this is important to illustrate because I think it points to the, exactly the kind of thing that Lewis is talking about here. Um, when the medievals approached this, they started with one basic premise. They said, okay, the mythology of the ancients, the pagan mythology, all this business about Jupiter and Venus and Mars and Mercury and all these other gods... The ancient people, the ancient Romans and Greeks, were too wise to be just wrong, right? Um, They didn't know nothing. They knew a great deal. They didn't have the whole answer, though, right? They didn't have revelation. They didn't have the Bible. They didn't know about God. They didn't know about Jesus. But they knew many things, right? They were right about many things. So there must be a truth that lies behind their mythology. When they said these things, they were gaining a glimpse. It wasn't a clear glimpse. They did, Again, they didn't have the full picture. They didn't see how it all fit together. But they were they were getting a glimpse of what is really there. So the medieval Christians believed that there were Oyarsis, that there were planetary intelligences, right? That each of the spheres of heaven was governed by an angelic... Okay, I'm sorry. I will call them angelic figures using that word in the super vague modern Protestant sense. Um, I say modern and Protestant because the word angel is actually not the name of the whole order of beings, but it's the name of the ninth and lowest ranking of those nine beings, according to medieval Catholicism. In uh, medieval angelology, there are nine ranks uh, of these Angelic figures, angels—the ones who appear in the Bible, who deliver messages, and and uh, 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 the, all that all that kind of thing—are the at the bottom of the angelic totem pole. Um, planetary intelligences are quite high uh, uh, in this thing, but the idea was very simple. It's uh, you will also, Tolkien fans, of course, will recognize the same kind of move by Tolkien: the idea of delegated powers of these. Uh, great powers from outside our world um, to whom real authority is delegated over how the world and the heavens work. Um, So I'm not saying that Lewis believed that exactly. Um, I'm not saying that he actually believed that the planetary intelligence existed and did exactly this thing. But what I am saying is that 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 kind of pattern, that pattern of saying not mythology is a bunch of made-up stories, stories made up by people who don't really understand how things work, Um, you, you know, made up by people who have only a childish understanding of the world, but after they get a more adult and sophisticated understanding of the world, the mythology goes away, right? Um the whole medieval approach to mythology was fundamentally different. And it's that approach. He is very much endorsing here to say, you know what, um, mythology has a function and those who devised mythology. Yeah. There's a lot that they didn't know, but that doesn't mean that they're not wise in their own way. It's not to say that they are not there, that, that there is not a truth that lies behind uh, that mythology as well. Um, yeah, yeah. Um Yeah, yeah. Um Yeah, now Jocelyn, I'm not sure I agree with you there. Um uh, I I don't think that Ransom is uh is I think that you know, say that Lewis is depicting Ransom Ransom as as bumbling and good-hearted but dumb. He's not dumb. It's not about intelligence at all. Um, what he is dramatizing, there there is certainly a way in which Ransom is being depicted almost like every man, like I you know just as I was saying with Weston and Divine, right? Before, um, there is a sense in which they're not designed to be sort of round characters. They're like they, Ransom is sort of the stand-in in a sense for like the modern, the intelligent and Christian, right? So he's he's not he's not stupid, nor is he ignorant of spiritual things, right? um he has many advantages he he is not uh he is not morally bankrupt he is not uh ignorant either of spiritual or of intellectual things and yet despite that lewis is plainly dramatizing through ransom many of the assumptions that modern people in general not again not not kind of i i don't at all see him um Uh, Sort of laughing at ransom uh, through this at all, but through ransom, he is depicting what are some of the assumptions that modern people make, right? What are some of the ways in which modern people look at the world, which are um, major leaps, right? Leaps, but leaps that we rarely even question, That, you know, that people back in the 30s rarely even, you know, reconsidered Um, things like about space and about what uh, alien intelligences must be like and all those other things, kind of Lovecraftian things that we've seen and all that kind of stuff. Um, He is. So, again, I do not at all see him criticizing Ransom. Ransom is in. I, I mean, I think Ransom. Comes out looking wonderfully in this book, and even more so in later books. But, um, but he is a representative. He is making many of those same assumptions. Uh, if you again, if you sort of think about this as a science fiction project, right? What is the what if that he's pointing to? Like, what is the, what is the, what is the use of going to another planet? Well, what one of the things that Lewis is doing is. Um, by transplanting, uh, you know, sort of unexpectedly to the protagonist, transplanting his protagonist into another world, he is putting him in a place where he is forced to question uh, in ways which he never would on Earth, surrounded by humans and in a human environment, th- questioning things he would never question in those environments, right? Um Uh, That almost nobody does question, uh, which is so easy to forget that there are even assumptions that you're making. Right. Uh, And he uh, and he instead drops Ransom in a place where he is forced again and again to confront the fact that even somebody like Ransom, even someone who is uh, who is virtuous and faithful and smart uh, and pious and good, still. Makes these assumptions, right? Still has these issues, which he, uh, you know, is sort of slowly and eventually working through. Even his own fearfulness, right, about meeting, uh, about meeting Oyarsa, in the end. Okay. All right. So then he's standing for his portrait from the Fiffletrig. Yes, yes. Not so good as I hoped. Do better another time. Leave it now. Come and see yourself. Ransom obeyed. He saw a picture of the planets. Not now arranged to make a map of the solar system, but advancing in a single procession towards the spectator, and all save one bearing its fiery charioteer. Below lay Malacandra, and there, to his surprise, was a very tolerable picture of the spaceship. Beside it stood three figures, for all of which Ransom had apparently been the model. He recoiled from them in disgust even allowing for the strangeness of the subject from a Malachandrian point of view, and for the stylization of their art. Still, he thought, the creature might have made a better attempt at the human form than these stock-like dummies, almost as thick as they were tall, and sprouting about the head and neck into something that looked like fungus. He hedged. "'I expect it is like me as I look to your people,' he said. "'It is not how they would draw me in my own world.' No, said the fifth old trick, I do not mean it to be too like. Too like, and they will not believe it, those who are born after. He added a good deal more, which was difficult to understand, but while he was speaking, it dawned upon Ransom that the odious figures were intended as an idealization of humanity. I do not mean it to be too like, too like, and they will not believe it. Those who are born after. Again, notice that um the fiffeltrig he assumes, he sees the picture, and he's like, Wow, that's bad. That is just that is a really, really bad portrait, right? Um, the creature might have made a better attempt at the human form than these stock-like dummies, right? I, I mean, come on, that's awful. Even allowing for the strangeness of the subject and for the stylization of their art, like, okay, like, I'm not a, like, their art isn't totally my bag, right? But even taking that into account, this is a crappy portrait. His immediate assumption is this is incompetent. Right. That the creature has tried and has ended up producing a very crude attempt at a portrait. Right. But that's not what happened. Right. He has. Remember, the idea that he was standing for his portrait, that was Ransom's conclusion. As he watched the trig and was watching the Trig look back and forth between him and the rock, right, um, he was assuming that his portrait was being done. And so therefore he, come, he came to see the picture with certain expectations, right, certain assumptions that he brought um, because he assumed this was going to be a portrait in some sense. What has actually happened? Exactly, Brian. This is not incompetence. There is a purpose to this. The Trig is perfectly capable of making an accurate depiction. It could do that, right? As Ransom himself can see, because it has, in fact, copied the spaceship accurately right you know he 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 says that it uh um, he saw a very tolerable picture of the spaceship, so the spaceship's fine, they are able to do accurate depictions, but he doesn't do it why doesn't he do it? Why doesn't the fiffle trig um want to make an accurate portrait. He explains, I do not mean it to be too like. Too like, and they will not believe it, those who are born after. Yeah, Brian, I do think it's possible that Ransom had been sort of flattering himself that the portrait was meant to represent him specifically. Yeah. Yeah. Um. And Brian, you're absolutely right. Also, that the fiffletrig assumes that the spaceship will be more believable to future Malachandrians than the specific form of humans. Yes, yes. Um. Also, of course, this spaceship looks like a ball, right? So it's it's a not that hard to 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 depict, but b um, there's nothing. I don't know. Uh. Apparently, yes. If that's like, it's not going to keep people from believing in it. Um, Yes, Veronica, it does seem that the human form is going to look freakish to the Malachandrians. Um, Is there some kind of equivalent... To is there some kind of equivalent to the Uncanny Valley that the Malakandrians would experience? I don't. I can't think so. I I sort of think that the Uncanny Valley experience that Ransom has is a result of his own bentness, not and combined with the fact that there's only one species of now on Earth. Um, I don't think that the Malakandrians would have exactly that problem and yes David I'm not going to say that I'm not trying to say that depicting a perfect circle in stone is trivial and easy I doubtless no way could do it um, I'm just saying that uh, it's it's a simple shape and so to to say their, their spaceship is a simple shape I'm going to depict that simple shape doesn't seem uh, doesn't seem a big leap um, but um, uh But Veronica, back to your point, the human form, if accurately depicted, is going to look in some way freakish to the Malachandrians. But I think there's more to it than that. Um, it dawned upon Ransom that the odious figures were intended as an idealization of humanity what is the Trig depicting? Has he depicted ugliness because he's incompetent? No. Has he depicted ugliness because he finds Ransom ugly? I, I, I'm sure he does find Ransom ugly, but I think there's more to it than that. Right? Because if that were the only thing, he could have drawn them accurately. Right? Um... The solution to say, to say, um, to say, if I drew you exactly like you look, you would you'd look so ugly. Nobody would believe anybody could be that ugly. Right. Um, but again, if he's trying to epitomize their ugliness, why, why not just show it? Right. Um, and put underneath. Yeah. Believe it or not this is what they uh, actually looked like but again the point that is striking ransom is not that he is merely exaggerating the human form or failing to capture the human form but that he is depicting something he is depicting something other than their physical form um likely about i agree Uh, It seems to me very likely that what he's doing an idealization, meaning not making them ideal, making them beautiful, but rather almost the opposite. Right. He is trying to depict them not as they look, but as they are. Right. What are these creatures? And he is somewhat interested in the physical appearance. He is looking over at Ransom. Right. So he does use Ransom's body as a model for all three in some sense, right? But it's not likeness, that physical likeness that he's depicting. In some sense, what he seems to be depicting is their essence, moral essence, spiritual essence. It took me a long time, but I've come around to thinking that when the Fifiltrig says, I do not mean it to be too like too like, and they will not believe it, those who are born after. He's not saying, I could make you look more attractive, right? But if I did, they wouldn't believe it. And I was always like, why wouldn't they believe it? Why would they, why would those who come after believe the greater ugliness if they wouldn't believe the lesser ugliness, right? But only after a long time did I come to think, no, Ransom is missing the point entirely here. What the Fiffle Trig is saying is, um, I don't mean it to be too like, that is, I didn't depict you as ugly as you actually are. I prettied you up, right? I just sketched you simply. And I only suggested your ugliness, right? Um, because if I really tried to depict it, then um, uh, if I really tried to depict it, then I would um, then people wouldn't wouldn't believe if I said you were as ugly as you actually are. They wouldn't believe it. Right. Think about how that fits with things that we've heard before. Think about Hui and how Hyoi wasn't even sure that he could make Ransom believe you know, I do not ask you to believe it. He says when he was describing to Ransom how there, he once heard a story of a Hross who wanted to have two mates, right? Um, and Ransom, of course, is very struck by the fact that monogamy is so um, universally observed by the Hrossa that it's uh, almost inconceivable, right? That someone like Adultery is almost literally unimaginable to them, and he always says, "I don't ask you to believe it, right?" And think how Ransom, many of Ransom's questions as he's trying to figure out who's the dominant race in Malakandra, they keep just not understanding, right? Um, because they don't get it. They don't get the whole concepts behind it, right? Um, you know, when he's saying, "Well, okay, so what if, uh, what if you?" wanted to, somebody wanted to take your food and you didn't want them to, what would happen? And they're like, why would we be running out of food? They just, remember how they were just incapable of getting it, right? In that way, I think that those who are born after wouldn't believe the true ugliness of the bent now of Thulcandra if the Fiffletrig, if this Fiffletrig, um, Kanaka Baraka, I think his name is, um, if he actually depicted it, if he made the image too like. Um, so th- I think that he and Ransom are speaking. The reason why uh, the Fiffle statement, um, too like and they will not believe it, seems a little bit... I mean, doesn't it feel like it doesn't... It's, it kind of cuts across Ransom's objection, like the two of them are having a very different response. Um, and I think that ultimately, I think the answer to that is that the Fiffle Trig is saying, you're uglier than even this. And Ransom is saying, we're not anything like that ugly, right? Um, and again, it's in the end, I think, not about their physical form, but it's about their trying to convey in this picture what were these creatures from Thulchondra like? What were the bent Hamana of the earth actually like? And he, the Fiffletrig, is just going to sketch the basic... Like imagine these uh, blocky, square things with fungus faces, right? That gives you a vague idea of what the Hamana of Thulchondra are like, as much as you can handle, right? Um... Okay, that night Ransom slept in the guest house, which was a real house built by Fiffle Triggy and richly decorated. His pleasure at finding himself in this respect, under more human conditions, was qualified by the discomfort which, despite his reason, he could not help feeling in the presence at close quarters of so many Malachandrian creatures. All three species were represented. They seemed to have no uneasy feelings towards each other, though there were some differences of the kind that occur in a railway carriage on earth, the Sorens finding the house too hot and the Triggy finding it too cold. He learned more of Malachandrian humor and of the noises that expressed it in this one night than he had learned during the whole of his life on the strange planet hitherto. Indeed, nearly all Malachandrian conversations in which he had yet taken part had been grave, Apparently the comic spirit arose chiefly from the meeting of the different kinds of now. The jokes of all three were equally incomprehensible to him. He thought he could see differences in kind, as that the Sorns seemed to get beyond, seldom got beyond irony, while the Hrasa were extravagant and fantastic, and the triggy were sharp and excelled in abuse. But even when he understood all the words, he could not see the points. He went to bed. When he finally sees all three species together, the things that he find, what he finds here is jokes, humor, right? Um, that is to say, the three different rational species of Malachandra are not uniform, right? They're not all the same. Now, that is obvious and has been obvious from the beginning. We've seen not only that they have very different physical forms but they have very different cultures and interests and cultural niches in the larger you know, ecosystem of Malacandra. Um, but we see that these different so it raises potentially the question that he has been um, uh, trying to get an answer to from the beginning. Right? Okay surely you three races all in your own different ways intelligent, both equal to each other in one sense, in that you're all now and you're all rational and you're all kind of equally intelligent, even if not all equally learned in all the same ways. But but then again, you have so much not in common, right? There must be a lot of gaps between you culturally, right? Um, there must be a lot of ignorance. There must be a lot of... Uh, therefore shouldn't there be wouldn't it be likely that there would be lots of of prejudice of uh, uh, of you know lack of understanding of a lack of empathy of of conflict therefore arising among them that one of them arguing as we even see what sounds like the seeds of that in those complimentary conversations that we hear first among the Harassa and the and then among the Sorns, right? The Harassa saying that the Sorns are absolutely useless in boats and uh and can't make poetry to save their lives. And the Sorn Augre saying that Harassa, you know, uh they um they only understand about growing things and about poetry and they don't understand anything else. And um again, you can hear in that what sounds like, um, uh, you can you can hear uh, in there in 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 that framework, right? What sounds like the potential for real conflict, right? For real, like class wars, race wars, in Malakandra. In fact, it would seem like that's inevitably where it would end up on Earth, right? Um, as uh, Ransom has been assuming from the beginning. And yet when he sees them all together, he finds not that they all just get along, right? Not that they, like, those differences vanish when they're all together. And when they're all there on Mel- and they're like, oh, well, you know, we all, we all really think the same. No, they don't all think the same, right? But the differences between them result not in conflict, uh, not in antagonism, but in humor, in comedy. Right, they all equally laugh at each other. Um I'm imagining this the, the Hrassa doing imitations, right? Uh, the Fiffle excelling in abuse. Um so I I uh I'm not sure what your first name is, L Wilson. Um uh, abusive just exactly like Hobbitry. Exactly, yes. Uh remember that um I always think of that comment that Theoden makes when um uh, Gimli is going at it with Marion Pippin when they meet again in a, in, at Isengard, right? Well earned. I can't believe that, right? And uh, and Theoden says, Ah, oh, it is. There's, there, it, 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 there's. It cannot be doubted that we see the the meeting of dear friends, right? Uh, which, of course, conclusion he draws by how abusive they're being to each other, right? If there's one thing that you've not found in your hunting, and that's sharper wits, um, yes, that I do believe to be exactly the kind of abuse uh that uh the uh that the the fiffle tricky excel at um but uh but yeah, David exactly nobody gets offended at these kinds of jokes at Malachandra. they are all he learns more not only just about uh you know the kind of jokes they all make, but here he learns more about the different noises that all the different species make for different kinds of laughter, right i mean the whole house is just full of laughter all night long because they're all really funny. They all value different things. They all look at the world in different ways and that's hilarious, right? They all (laughs) never cease to find each other funny. Um, uh, and it never does lead to conflict. And that's really, um, that's really fascinating. Um, Yeah. Now, Sarah says maybe I'm missing a point here, but I'm disappointed that he wasn't able to enjoy or enter into the humor more uh, on this occasion. He does seem to appreciate the significance of it, Sarah. But of course, his problem is he can't understand it. Right. I I mean, it's so much of humor and especially of this kind of you know humor like between different species right um is going to be based on tone of voice and everything and 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 you know like the that you know the 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 comic spirit of the Hrasa, right the extravagant and fantastic uh jokes and um dramatizations and and uh, uh possibly impressions right of the Hrasa, are not necessarily going to translate well right um nor always is the irony of the Sorns, nor even the abuse of the Fitful So Even when he understands the words, he doesn't always understand why these things are funny, right? And I think in part, Sarah, this sort of speaks to, again, the fact that he, he's just he's just sort of... He doesn't get it. He just does not understand um, why a lot of these things are funny. Um, and it is, Devorah, I agree often the case with the second language. Um. Okay, sorry, wrong way. Okay, now we're going to go meet Oyarsa. He perceived gradually that the place was full of Eldila. The lights, or suggestions of light, which yesterday had been scattered over the island, were now all congregated in this one spot, and were all stationary, or only very faintly moving. The sun had risen by now, and still no one spoke. As he looked up to see the first pale sunlight upon the monoliths, he became conscious that the air above him was full of a far greater complexity of light than the sunrise could explain, and light of a different kind, Eldil light. The sky no less than the earth was full of them. The visible Malachandrians were but the smallest part of the silent consistory which surrounded him. He might, when the time came, be pleading his cause before thousands or before millions, rank behind rank about him, and rank above rank over his head, the creatures that had never yet seen man and whom man could not see were waiting for his trial to begin. He licked his lips, which were quite dry, and wondered if he, were, if he would be able to speak when speech was demanded of him. Then it occurred to him that perhaps this, this waiting and being looked at, was the trial. Perhaps even now he was unconsciously telling them all they wished to know. But afterwards, a long time afterwards, there was a noise of movement. Every visible creature in the grove had risen to its feet and was standing, more hushed than ever, with its head bowed, and Ransom saw, if it could be called seeing, that Oyarsa was coming up between the long lines of sculptured stones. Partly he knew it from the faces of the Malacandrians as their lord passed them. Partly he saw, he could not deny that he saw, Oyarsa himself. He could never. He never could say what it was like, the merest whisper of light, no less than that, the smallest diminution of shadow was travelling along the uneven surface of the groundweed, or rather some difference in the look of the ground, too slight to be named in the language of the five senses, moved slowly towards him, like a silence spreading over a room full of people, like infinitesimal coolness, like an infinitesimal coolness on a sultry day like a passing memory of some long-forgotten sound or scent, like all that is stillest and smallest and most hard to seize in nature. Oyarsa passed between his subjects and drew near and came to rest, not ten yards away from Ransom, in the center of Meldalorn. Ransom felt a tingling of his blood and a pricking on his fingers, as if lightning were near him, and his heart and body seemed to him to be made of water. This is uh, a wonderful description, I think. Um, the way in which he sets this up first by describing the rank upon rank of El Dila above him and around him, right? That he is, uh, you know, standing, as far as he knows, he's standing trial before millions uh, of creatures, right? Again, the way in which this changes some of the assumptions that he makes, like about how physical space works, for instance, um, it's uh, it's a big deal, right? Um, and you're right, David. Ransom is an ugly bag, mostly of of, of mostly water. Yes, exactly. And he feels it, right? Um, and that seems to me one of the effects. Again, one of these kinds of reversals of perspective, right? As he meets Oyarsa, the greatest the most powerful, the most intimidating of all of these creatures and finds him like all that is stillest and smallest and most hard to seize in nature, finds him almost but not quite invisible, almost but not quite perceptible, so that any image that is used to describe him, any sensory image used to describe him, would be an exaggeration, right? Um... But again, the effect is not that this Oyarsa isn't such a big deal after all, right? The effect is it's Ransom himself, who is too simple, too coarse, too base, right? Um, he is aware of—and again, this strikes back to—remember how when he was first meeting the Hrosa, right, when he first met Hye, um, he was making all those comparisons those earth comparisons, right? Um, You know, kind of like a stoat, kind of like a seal, kind of like, remember all that stuff? Um, And, you know, he kept going back and forth like, it's an animal. No, it's like a person, but it's kind of like, but it's kind of an animal, but it's kind of a person. Um, How he kept just applying human standards, even the standard of humanity, how he kept getting repulsed by the Hrasa, because they were like humans, but horribly warped humans, right? Well, again, only horribly warped if you accept our standard, us as the standard of comparison, right? Um, But here he is finding that not only himself as a human and his own physical body, but even the planet itself, right? Even all sensory experience of our world is inadequate to capturing what Oyarsa is like. It's not just Ransom, who is small and temporary, compared to Oyarsa. It's the planet itself, which is small and temporary, compared to Oyarsa. And notice how Oyarsa is walking up the path, except he's not walking up the path. Right? The path, that particular point, the island of Meldalorn, on the surface of the planet Mars, right on the surface of malakandra is spinning around and hurtling around the sun, right? So the actual trajectory in space that the island of Meldalorn is traveling at this moment is this, you know, sort of crazy oscillating circle around the sun, right? It is out in the heavens that Oyarsa lives. So you see the sort of concession, of the, the humility involved in the appearance of Oyarsa walking up the path. Right? It's not just that he is deigning to constrain his motions to the motion of Malacandra, right? So that he appears to be here on the planet, right? Um, instead of letting the planet flit by him in the transitory way that planets do, right? Compared to the ultimate sort of reality and stillness of his life among the heavens. But he even is accommodating the appearance of, of the motion, of the relative motion, of his own body, right? That barely, barely perceptible thing to Ransom. He's even accommodating the apparent motion of his body to that world, making it look like he's walking up the path to the top of the hill. When, of course, he's doing nothing of the sort, right? And again, Ransom's perceptions are sort of reminding us of that. Um... And yes, David, I agree. David Atlee says, after this, you can't really blame the Hrasa for their inability to explain Oyarsa. He simply isn't like anything Ransom can understand in their language. No, absolutely not. In fact, he's struggling to explain it in our language, right, in his own language. Um, yeah. Devora, that's a really wonderful question. She asks, why does he feel that he's on trial? Um, is he still expecting that he will be blamed for Hyoi's death? Possibly. I mean, he's been summoned before Oyarsa. Uh, He knows he's been called. He knows he's been summoned. And he feels himself, he feels shame. He feels himself to be responsible. He feels himself to be guilty. Remember, he was saying to himself that if he died on the way to Meldalorn, it would have been, you know, right for that to happen, right? So he does feel himself deserving of a trial in that way, deserving even of... uh, of condemnation, perhaps. So, yes, I do think that that tells us more about Ransom's own feelings, his own attitude here, than it does about necessarily what is going on. Yes, there are spectators, but they're not necessarily spectators at a trial. Yeah. Um, yeah, good. Stephen and uh, uh, Torlonio are both remembering uh, that line in the Bible about uh, God being a still small voice. Um, yes, 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 to the prophet, uh, uh, Elisha, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, agreed. I, I, I certainly think of that here too. Um, uh, I can't imagine Lewis wasn't thinking of that when he described all that is stillest and smallest, uh, here. Um, but, um, yes, uh, even the sequence of those words stillest and smallest, I think is, uh, an allusion to the still small voice, uh, in that, uh. In that sequence. Okay. Um, but he is called upon to speak. I do not understand, O Yarsa. Do you mean that it was you who sent for me from tholkandra Yes. Did not the other two tell you this? And why did you come with them, unless you meant to obey my call? My servants could not understand their talk to you when your ship was in heaven. Your servants... I cannot understand, said Ransom. Ask freely, said the voice. Have you servants out in the heavens? Where else? There is nowhere else. But you, O Yarsa, are here on Malakendra as I am. But Malachandra, like all worlds, floats in heaven, and I am not here altogether as you are, Ransom of Tholkhandra. Creatures of your kind must drop out of heaven into a world. For us the worlds are places in heaven. But do not try to understand this now. It is enough to know that I and my servants are even now in heaven. They were around you in the skyship, no less than they are around you here. Then you knew of our journey before we left Thulchandra? No. Thulchandra is the world we do not know. It alone is outside the heaven, and no message comes from it. Remember, this... Ransom does have a way to understand this, because his... Voyage Through the Heavens gave him something like this kind of insight, right? Remember that he was beginning to perceive uh, the reversal of his own assumptions, of his own mental picture of space and how it worked, right? Um, Whereas modern... Uh, people tend to think of the Earth as this bright, light, living place, and outside the atmosphere of the Earth is the cold, dead vacuity of space, right? Um, and Ransom finds, in traveling through the heavens, that it's quite different from that, and that, in fact, remember this was right. This was the philosophical speculation that he found himself caught up in as he was landing on Mil- on Melanchandra for the first time, right? Um so he began to perceive there that the situation might be opposite, that the heavens are what is light and full of life, and it's the earth where the earths are like clusters of shadow, right? Are places of darkness and comparative death. Um And now turns out that's partially true. That's not in fact true of everywhere but it is true of earth right earth is a collection of darkness earth is a little vacuum um in which there is no light and no life comparatively right um a dark dead vacuity is what tholkandra is compared to the rest of the heavens not all of the earths just tholkandra um and that perhaps is a little bit challenging to swallow here um. Yeah, David. I agree. David says uh, it it alone is outside the heaven, and no message comes from it. Um, it is interesting phrasing. Uh, he doesn't say the heavens as uh, uh has as Ransom has been saying, right? But notice he that is Oyarsa uses uh, the singular all the way through. When your ship was in heaven. Have you servants out in the heavens? asks Ransom. Um and then he says, But Malacandra, like all worlds, floats in heaven. It alone is outside the heaven. So yeah, Oyarsa refers to it as a singular, right? Why is Ransom using the plural? He is using the plural because he is following the medieval usage when they talked about the heavens. And when the medievals were talking about the heavens, they were talking about the different spheres, right? You've got the sphere of Earth and the sphere of the Moon and the sphere of Mercury and Venus and the Sun and all the rest of them, right? Um, And then, of course, all of the spheres move together. And and so those collectively are the heavens, right? Right. so, David, one thing that I would conclude from this is that Oyarsa is here also gently implying. Yes, it is true that your older mythology has a better understanding of heaven, of the he- of heaven, right? Than uh, uh, than you modern scientific civilized humans have. But they didn't totally get it either. They weren't thinking about it correctly. Um, it's not a striated layer of different heavens. It is one heaven, and the earths go around. And so, in fact, what we're seeing, I think, I think what we are hearing, what we're meant to hear in O'Yars' words here, is an actual reconciliation of the essence of the medieval uh, geocentric astronomical mythology. Right? The essence of that in fact reconciled with the Copernican solar system, right? Um, they all know, the Malachandrians know, Oyarsa certainly knows, that all of the Earths revolve around the sun, right? But that doesn't make the medievals totally wrong. They were more right than the modern people are, right? But neither one of those human, those sets of humans were quite right about it, right? Neither of them had the full picture. That's, a, that's, a, that's an excellent observation. Um Yeah. Yeah. Um Yeah, Jocelyn, you're right that um uh well, Ransom does jump to the assumption that Okay. Ransom overhears Weston and Divine jumping to the assumption that Oyar that that the sorns want to sacrifice a human to Oyarsa right when they when they are told that, that that you know one of them needs to come to Oyarsa they assume that it's for a sacrifice right and we can see all of the layers of assumption the assumptions about how primitive their culture is the assumption about the the um uh you know, the wickedness of that culture, the wickedness and crudity of that culture, um, uh, and their, uh, and their crude mythology and note O'Yars' puzzlement that he, he just asked them to come over to Meldalorn and talk to him. And instead they went to earth and back because they thought that was the only way they could do it without dying. Um, very puzzling to Oyarsa it was not always so once we knew the Oyarsa of your world he was brighter and greater than I and then we did not call it Tholkhandra it is the longest of all stories and the bitterest he became bent that was before any life came on your world those were the bent years of which we still speak in the heavens when he was not yet bound to Tholkhandra but free like us it was in his mind to spoil other worlds besides his own. He smote your moon with his left hand, and with his right he brought the cold death on my Harandra before its time. If by my arm Meleldil had not opened the Hondramats and let out the hot springs, my world would have been unpeopled. We did not leave him so, so at large for long. There was great war, and we drove him back out of the heavens and bound him in the air of his own world, as Meleldil taught us, There, doubtless, he lies to this hour, and we know no more of that planet. It is silent. We think that Meleldil would not give it up utterly to the Bent One, and there are stories among us that he has taken strange counsel and dared terrible things, wrestling with the Bent One in Thalcandra. But of this we know less than you. It is a thing we desire to look into. Okay, so... um. Again, here we see the, I think, the truth behind the Hanakra-like figure that uh, Ransom thought a mere symbol of the cold, uh, which probably was not. Um, Nancy, wonderful question. Nancy says, uh, Oyarsa is not a personal name. It's the kind of thing he is. Or is Oyarsa using this terminology to make it easier to understand um, that he's a sort of a thing like Oyarsa? The former Nancy that Oyarsa is more his title, than uh, it's a description of what he is. The greatest of the Eldila are the Oyarsu, are the the Oyarsas, right? Um, He is called Oyarsa here on Malacandra. To people outside Malacandra, they would not call him Oyarsa. They would call him Malacandra. It turns out, yes, exactly, devora That's why this place is called Um Exactly, exactly. Um, and so, David, we absolutely should be thinking of the fall of Lucifer with this story here. And note, once again, right? Once again, we see there are stories about this, right? Just as in discovering about the other Oyarsas, right the other Oyerasu of the other planets. I think Oyerasu is the correct plural if I'm remembering correctly. Um, about the other Oyarces to use uh, uh, to use um, Bernardo term um, as is mentioned in the appendix. Anyway, um, when we learn about the other Oyarsas, um we see that there was some truth that lay behind pagan mythology. So here we see the truth that lies behind these vague and mythological biblical stories as well about the dragon and the war between Michael and the dragon uh, and the fall of Lucifer, which does never actually get described um, in any kind of detail, I mean the the like the name Lucifer and that whole business is from one chapter in Isaiah, which is not real clear actually um uh so yes, yeah, so we have all of these um all of these stories about the fall of the great archangel Lucifer and uh then the and this bent spirit right who is the tempter, right? The accuser, which is what Satan means. Uh, and you know, has had these, and the, and you think about the New Testament references to, um, uh, to, you know, uh, powers in high places and all these kinds of things, right? All of these things, which are stated, some of them in ways that sound mythological, like especially, you know, like the war in heaven and the dragon falling to the earth and all these kinds of things, um. But again, there is there is a true story behind that too. We are learning, right? Um, and Oyarsa here, the Oyarsa of Malakandra, is telling the story. Um, yes, David says uh, if by my arm Maleldil had not opened. Uh, uh, David's saying he loves how Oyarsa instinctively credits Maleldil with being behind his own power. Yes, did did the Oyarsa of Malachandra do it? Yes. Um did Meleldil do it? Yes. Th- those there's those things are not a contradiction in Oyars' mind, right? Um he knows he did it, he knows that Maleldil did it through him. That's how things work. Um uh, Christy says, Is there a legend about Lucifer smiting the moon? Um not a um uh not a biblical one. That I recall, but this is, there is a long debate in the Middle Ages about why it is that there should be dark spots on the moon. It might not seem like a big deal to say like, well, why shouldn't there be dark spots on the moon? Because it's meant to be perfect. The understanding was that things up in the heavens are immutable and perfect, perfect because immutable. Not only unfallen, but unchanging. Uh, so, um, the fact that there are splotches on the moon suggested that it was maybe once, you know, perfect and then got smudged somehow, right? That it's been changing, that it did change at some point. And this was a, this was a problem. This was an issue. Um, and, uh, uh, and it's, um, uh, so Lewis is offering basically, it's, it's almost like his, his intended audience there is medieval, not modern in a sense, right? Uh, he is uh, throwing a bone to, to the medieval theologians who debated this, right? Here, here's a theory about how that, how that worked. Um, and David, you are absolutely right that there is a legend about Melkor smiting the moon. Yeah, exactly. And that I do not think is a coincidence. Um, ah, John, see, now that is interesting. Yes, uh, Michelle is quoting, no stain yet on the moon was seen. Absolutely, yes. Um, Absolutely. Um, uh, Yes, good, Arthur is thinking about the same thing. Um, uh, But, um, yeah, so John is asking if everything outside you know in the heavens was immutable how did they explain supernovas ah john they couldn't and that's exactly what brought about the change in the model the thing that destroyed the concept the thing that put paid to that concept of the heavens was the super, the great supernova um of the 16th century which was observed by Tycho Brahe, I believe, in, from several different places in Europe. And by, through triangulation, he was able to prove that this phenomenon, which had not been there before and was there now and went away afterwards, um, was definitely above the atmosphere. The, ex- the explanation of any previous phenomenon like that, comets and that kind of thing, was that it was atmospheric. Right. It's like, oh, you know, sometimes things like like, you know, shooting stars and stuff like that. That's atmospheric. It's not up in the the, that's not a question of like the fixed stars changing. That's um, uh, that's something visible within the sphere of Earth. Right. Um, And Tycho Brahe demonstrated that supernova. um, Which one was it? The Crab Nebula supernova? I'm forgetting now. Um, Anyway, um, he demonstrated that it was um, uh, it was. He proved that it was further out than the Earth's atmosphere could possibly go. Um, Than they knew the Earth's atmosphere actually went. uh, And so therefore had to be out in the heavens. And so therefore proved first and foremost, you know, once and for all proved that the heavens were not, in fact, unchanging. And that was the biggest. That was the biggest. People talk about Copernicus. That wasn't the big shift. The idea that you know the earth revolves around the sun and not the sun around the earth wasn't the huge deal modern people like to talk about like that, that about it like that's the big deal that wasn't the big deal uh the big the bigger deal was the question of the immutability of the heavens um yeah the the crab nebula yeah yeah that's uh, oh wait no okay hang on a second david says that one was the supernova of 1054 no it was it was it was the one the 15 I, i'm forgetting which nebula it was now um But um, anyway, one of those. There was the the, the big, huge supernova that happened in the 16th century, and I could look it up, but I don't remember off the top of my head. Um, Okay. Um, Good. Let's see. Okay, let's keep going. Uh, oh, wait, no, this is the one I just ran. Teehee, went the wrong way again. Okay. Then we get, um, he's asking them about the plans, right? Um, the two questions he's just asked, uh, Oyarsa has just asked to Ransom are why have you come here to Malakandra, and what do you plan to do here? For the first question, Oyarsa, I have come here because I was brought. Of the others, one cares for nothing but the sun's blood, because in our world he can exchange it for many pleasures and powers. But the other means evil to you. I think he would destroy all your people to make room for our people, and then he would do the same with other worlds again. He wants our race to to last for always, I think, and he hopes they will leap from world to world, always going to a new sun when an old one dies, or something like that. Is he wounded in his brain? I do not know. Perhaps I do not describe his thoughts right. He is more learned than I. Does he think he could go to the great worlds? Does he think Maleldil wants a race to live forever? He does not know there is any Maleldil. But what is certain, O Yarsa, is that he means evil to your world. Our kind must not be allowed to come here again. If you can prevent it only by killing all three of us, I am content. Um... Okay. All right, there we go. Thank you. Jennifer Pope and David Atley looked it up uh, for me. Okay. All right. The reason I'm not remembering the name of the nebula is that it doesn't have a good name Um, B. Cassiopeiae, or uh, Supernova 1572 from 1572, which is when it happened, I believe. Uh, And the remnant nebula is called Tycho's Supernova Remnant. Yep. You're right, David. Astronomers suck at names. Okay. Um, (laughs) David Erbach says, is he wounded in the brain? (laughs) Oh, that is way too applicable, a quote in my everyday life. Yeah, yeah, I hear that. I hear that. Um, Yeah. Um, And David, I agree with you. David Erbach says, Ransom is actually quite generous to Weston, trying to really understand him rather than just get mad at him and accuse him of things. Exactly. I mean, he could... He could just be completely throwing Weston under the bus and being like, yeah, man, Weston, is he wounded in his brain? Yeah, probably like that guy. Like he just wants to kill everything. Um, He is. I mean, it is true that genocide is very much in Weston's plans for Malacandra. Right. So Ransom is being perfectly honest and correct about that. Um, But um, but I agree, David, that Ransom is not is being as fair as he can uh, to Weston, kind of giving him not exactly the benefit of the doubt, but trying to explain the like most positive element of Weston's of Weston's plan. Um <laughs> Arthur says, Does Weston deserve death? I dare say he does. Exactly, as Gandalf would say. Um Yeah, yeah. Um Yeah <laughs> Good point, Colette. Colette says that astronomers may suck at names, but they did settle on "spaghettification" as the official term for what happens to matter when it is sucked into black holes. True. That's a good word. That's a good word. So they're good neologists, but bad namers. Uh, okay. Okay. I can agree with that. Um. Yeah. Notice that again. This is we're coming up. up we're coming upon here. One of the most fundamental differences in perspective, right, that we're going to get when we bring to when we finally have this kind of summit meeting of, you know, the luminaries of Earth and the luminaries of, of Malacandra, right, when Oyarsa meets uh, these three very distinguished human specimens, right, Ransom and Weston, who are both highly intelligent, right, who both highly trained, um, uh, cultured, intellectual people. Uh, and, um, and Weston, what's more, who is in addition to being, he's not only a theoretical physicist, he's also an inventor and has made himself into an explorer as well. Um, and Divine, who, although not very admirable at all, is still nevertheless uh, an industrialist and uh, a, 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 a sort of a entrepreneur, right? I mean, he is, there is definitely a, an intrepidity. Uh, in uh, in divine right, uh, he's definitely a go-getter. Um, but um, anyway, so when these when these all come together, when the representatives of Earth and Mars come together here, the number the the fundamental gap of understanding is this sense of human progress. Right to Weston, it is the most natural thing in the world. As human beings progress. It is it it is their right to expand, right? It is their right. Obviously, they have a right to survival, and if they can only survive at the exp- at the expense of other species, so be it. Other species would survive at the expense of them if they could, right? It's survival of the fittest, man, and so you know uh, that's that that's what needs to happen, and so that's what's going to happen. Um, and Oyarsa's response upon hearing that is not. What gives you the right? Why do you think... But, like, is he wounded in the brain? Right? Is... This is... It's not only that he's not saying, my values are quite different from your values. Right? He is saying, that is... That is diseased thinking. Um, yes, Bruce, I agree. It's not just their right, it's their duty, he would say. Yes, definitely. Um... Definitely. Um... Michelle. Yeah. Michelle says all three of them seem to have a very British imperialist point of view, don't they? With their innate assumptions that any civilization other than theirs must be primitive in comparison. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I yes, sure. You can see that. Um, does the, you know, the modern perspective, I keep calling it the modern perspective, right? That, um, uh, Lewis the the modern 1930s perspective that Lewis is kind of dramatizing through both Ransom and through the other two as well. Um, does it have a sort of British imperialist flavor to it? Oh, oh yeah, sure, absolutely it does. But again, that's 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 the audience that he's writing for, right? So too did the you know like the eugenicism of uh, of uh, you know leading into like you know British intellectuals of the time and uh, and all that kind of thing. So yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Oh, Jennifer, we're getting to the translation. We're getting there. Um, uh, good. Yes, Brian, absolutely. Brian is, of course, recalling that the whole idea of human progress, that things are, you know, that humanity is moving on onwards and upwards in the world, right, um, is, is, of course, a very modern ver- view, and the medievals would not have thought that. And, and again, one of the things that that shows is that that's, Weston would never question that at all, right? To him, that's one of the obvious givens of life, right? Is that, you know, the species is moving onwards and upwards. Um, but even that assumption is sort of a local bias, right? I mean, that's a modern bias. That's not uh, that's not how most of humanity is, has always thought. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah, good. Um, yeah, Tomas says it seems that the conclusion is not just that humans tend to expand at other species' expense, but any species on Earth has been doing so, and humans were simply the most successful. Exactly, Tomas. And that's, of course, exactly the kind of situation, remember, that Ransom has been assuming was happening on Malacandra, right? Okay, who's really in charge here? Which race is really is really driving the bus here on Malacandra? Because one of them must be, clearly. One of them must be serving the others. Um, yeah, yeah. Um yeah. Um yeah, Jocelyn says it's a very different perspective looking at human progress and evolution from a viewpoint of biological eventuality or from a viewpoint of religious purpose. If there's a God, there will be continuation because all are cherished and beloved and planned. If there is no God, then the organisms have to struggle and scramble for themselves. Um that is one of the things, right? And that's one of the things that's going to come up, right? He does not know that there is any Maleldil, uh, says Ransom, right? That, that is one of the problems. Remember the conclusion that the wise Sorn, like the Loremaster Sorn, came to, right? Um, they each—they each—humans, right? Each themselves want to be their own little Oyarsa, right? Yeah, yeah. They think that they are alone, um, and they don't look to Meleldo, So then this the funeral procession comes in. After these, that is after the Hrossa, who are marching with the beers upon which the dead Hrossa are led, including Hyoi, after these came a number of others, armed with harpoons and apparently guarding two creatures which he did not recognize. The light was behind them as they entered between the two farthest monoliths. They were much shorter than any animal he had yet seen on Melacandra, and he gathered that they were bipeds, though the lower limbs were so thick and sausage-like that he hesitated to call them legs. The bodies were a little narrower at the top than at the bottom, so as to be very slightly pear-shaped, and the heads were neither round, like those of Hrossa, nor long, like those of Sorns, but almost square. They stumped along on narrow, heavy-looking feet, which they seemed to press into the ground with unnecessary violence. And now their faces were becoming visible as masses of lumped and puckered flesh of variegated color, fringed in some bristly, dark substance. Suddenly, with an indescribable change of feeling, he realized that he was looking at men. The two prisoners were Weston and Divine, and he, for one privileged moment, had seen the human form with almost malachandrian eyes. Um. This is... Lovely. D'Vore yeah, you're right, D'Vore, this is a lot more like Kanaka Baraka carved them, right? Uh, it is. Still not quite, but again, like the fungus-like growths, right? And the lumped and puckered flesh of variegated color fringed in some bristly dark substance is a little bit more like the fungus-like protrusions that uh, Kanaka Baraka depicted, certainly. But um, notice how this is how this very neatly reverses Ransom's experience of before, right? Um, He had always been, everything that he met, everything he saw, he was looking at from a fundamentally human point of view. The uncanny valley effect with the Sorns and the Hrasa to a different, you know, in a different way, Um, the way in which he kept trying to, you know, sort of fit it into his own terrestrial assumptions and terrestrial frame of reference now he sees, he has here the opposite experience, where now humanity itself, human things, look alien to him, right? And he, approaching the human form from a Malachandrian point of view, sees, in essence, how he must have looked uh, to Hyoi when he first met Hyoi, right? Um, and this seems like a very, uh, um, a very important moment for Ransom. Right. As he has been being given. And and, and notice how he calls this uh, a privileged moment. Right. That this moment of insight is something that he considers to be not only advantageous, but a gift, a blessing Um, that he has been both enabled to sort of step outside his the human assumptions that have been restricting his view and guiding his emotions all the way through. Um, But also that he. Has been enabled to see things from a Malachandrian perspective. <clears throat> yeah. Um. <coughs> it is almost like an optical illusion, Bruce. Like one of the like uh, the, um, yeah, like that that thing—the vase or candlestick—which resolves itself into two faces looking at each other, right? Yeah, it is almost like that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> um, Jennifer, back to uh, Heart of Darkness and the British Imperial point of view. Um, Weston knows what's what, right? There's obviously a ventriloquist here. You know, there's a witch doctor ventriloquist uh, who is trying to deceive them. Weston cleared his throat, and again rounded on the elderly Hross. We kill him, he shouted. Show what we can do. Everyone who know do all we say. Poof, bang. Kill him the same as that one. You do all we say, and we give you much pretty things. See, see. To Ransom's intense discomfort, Weston at this point whipped out of his pocket a brightly colored necklace of beads, the undoubted work of Mr. Woolworth, and began dangling it in front of the faces of his guards, turning slowly round and round and repeating, Pretty! Pretty! See! See! The result of this maneuver was more striking than Weston himself had anticipated. Such a roar of sounds as human ears had never heard before, baying of hrossa, piping of Triggy booming of sorns, burst out and rent the silence of that august place, waking echoes from the distant mountain walls. Even in the air above them there was a faint ringing of the Eldul voices. It is greatly to Weston's credit that though he paled at this, he did not lose his nerve. You no roar at me, he thundered. No, try make me afraid. Me no afraid of you. You must forgive my people, said the voice of Oyarsa, and even it was subtly changed. But they are not roaring at you, They are only laughing. Uh, Of course, the first thing to notice, right, the first thing to notice is that uh, when they, that is the three now species of melacandra, are encountering humans here, right, Um, even when the human is being insulting and, you know, aggressive and threatening death to them and everything. They, they, this is hilarious, right? They find this really, really, really funny. And it's like how they find each other funny. Like, wow, look at this! This guy is weird. He's even weirder than Rossa right? Oh my goodness. This is hysterical. Um, and, uh, and they, uh, they, uh, laugh, um, but um, you're right, Stephen. It, it, uh, Stephen says it's interesting that in movies or shows, this sort of uh, uh, action and speech is used to show how superior the imperialist is over the native. And here it makes Weston appear naive and foolish. Exactly. Because, of course, notice what's happening. One of the things that's happening here, right? Um, we have been seeing from the inside, right, f- sort of from Ransom's point of view, how his own assumptions about human superiority, about, you know, the, the kind of uh, earthly assumptions he's been making. We've, we've seen the ways in which they have led him down wrong roads, right? In his understanding of the Malacandrians. Um, just as in seeing Weston and Divine from the outside, he saw them from Malacandrian standpoint. He's now seeing the whole set of assumptions, which he himself has now moved past, being dramatized crudely, embarrassingly, humiliatingly dramatized, the assumptions that Weston is making that they are primitive and he is civilized and sophisticated, right that he can see through what they're trying to pull, right uh, because he is the wise and knowing one, um, whereas they are seeing through him, right you know that 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 their response the, their laughter at him, is in fact a far more sophisticated, uh, not only a more sophisticated response than the response he's expecting, um, but it's far more sophisticated than what he is showing. And he himself can't understand it, right? After he hears them laughing and understands that it's laughter, he turns to divine and says, I think they're not even as, in- they may be less intelligent than even we thought, right? Um Again showing that he is the ignorant one, he is the one who is not unintelligent but uh who is whose assumptions are entirely um entirely blinding him here um, yeah, yeah, um yeah, Bruce, it is a lot like Uncle Andrew responding to the animals in the magician's nephew, absolutely um, yeah, yeah. Um, And now you're right, David, that he doesn't understand the language very well, but again, his own ignorance of the language, the lack of sophistication of his speech, right? Poof, bang, kill the same as that one. Um, Kill him, same as that one. Um, It's, that is only sort of rendering explicit, like the, what he is attempting to convey is crude. His understanding of them is crude. The fact that it is coming out in crude, crudely formulated speech, is in its way appropriate and beautiful. Okay. Um, but then Weston is taken off to have his head dunked in cold water several times. Uh, and in the meanwhile, they perform the funeral ceremony for the Hrosa. Now, first he saw that its rhythms were based... thats the, the, Remember, he didn't get the music of the Hross before. Now, first he saw that its rhythms were based on a different blood from ours on a heart that beat more quickly, and a fiercer internal heat. Through his knowledge of the creatures and his love for them, he began ever so little to hear it with their ears, a sense of great masses moving at visionary speeds, of giants dancing, of eternal sorrows, eternally consoled, of he knew not what, and yet what he had always known, awoke in him with the very first bars of the deep-mouthed dirge, and it bowed down his spirit as if the gate of heaven had opened before him. Let it go hence, they sang. Let it go hence, dissolve and be no body. Drop it, release it, drop it gently, as a stone is loosed from fingers drooping over a, sill, uh, over a still pool. Let it go down, sink, fall away. Once below the surface there are no divisions, no layers in the water yielding all the way down. All one and all unwounded is that element. Send it voyaging it will not come again let it go down the now rises from it this is the second life the other beginning open o colored world without weight without shore you are second and better this was first and feeble once the worlds were hot within and brought forth life but only the pale plants the dark plants we see their children when they grow today out of the sun's light in the sad places After, the heaven made grow another kind of worlds, the high climbers, the bright-haired forests, cheeks of flowers. First were the darker, then the brighter. First was the world's brood, then the sun's brood. Okay, there's, um... Uh, there's a lot. There's a lot here. Um, uh... Colette says, is it too dramatic to call this enchantment? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. He is being transported by the song. Um, he is being transported by the song. And uh, in a way that is not unlike the way that, for instance, Bilbo is transported by the Dwarf Song in Chapter 1 of The Hobbit, or Frodo is transported by the music that he hears in the Hall of Fire uh, in Chapter 1 of Book 2 of The Lord of the Rings. Um, It's like that. It's not a Lewis concept. That's a Tolkien concept, and and so crossing those streams, I'm a little reluctant to do, but it's it's like that. Um, uh, Definitely some similarities there um yeah david atley says it's somewhat shocking that now seems to mean both soul and rational creature yes exactly um and this is uh in line with uh, sort of a lewisian doctrine that uh again one of the things that modern people tend uh to sort of say backwards he has said uh, he says at several points, um, we tend to talk about uh, you know like we think of ourselves as our bodies and we say we have a soul. Like, do you have a soul? I've got a soul. Do you have a soul? And uh, and he says no. It's it works. It's the other way around. You are a soul and you have a body. Um, and so that I think David is what we're seeing there, right? The 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 soul is the now, um, and so when the body goes right let it go down the now rises from it it's not just the soul of the now that rises from it it's the now itself uh the true now the essence of the now rises from it absolutely um you are second and better this was first in feeble um there's there's a lot to be considered here um I don't want to go into, so first of all, can I just point out, I love the fact that Lewis wrote this in prose, right? This is the first and only time in the book that Lewis has attempted to capture a Hross poem, right? What the Hross are singing. And um, he doesn't do it in verse. And that seems to me entirely right entirely right that lewis does that because they would not be using human meter right if he were if lewis were to have written this in verse form scanning and you know a meter with a certain number of feet and all that kind of thing then it would not be remember their whole the whole artistry of their poetry was opaque to Ransom. He couldn't figure it out. Or he couldn't make anything of it. He couldn't sort it out. He didn't get it. And if, you know, Lewis had written this in iambic pentameter or something like that, it it would be very gettable, right? Um, and Ransom, of course, is not going to try to convey the sense, uh, would not try to convey the sense of the Ross poem by converting it to iambic pentameter or something like that, right? So instead... He tells us about its rhythm, and then he just gives us the sense of it in prose. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Julie, I think Lewis was—the co- passage I'm thinking of, Lewis was quoting MacDonald there. George MacDonald was a major influence. Um, Julie was tracing that quote about the having a body thing. Uh, uh, to McDonald. Yeah. No, I think so. I think and I'm pretty sure Lewis credited him with it uh, when he said it. Um, I'm trying to remember where exactly that was that he said that, but I can't remember. That's what comes of like reading all of Lewis in the last few months. I can't always remember which comes from where. Uh, But uh, yeah, yeah, pretty sure. uh, Pretty sure that he credited George McDonald for that. Um, One of his favorite authors. Anyway. Um... uh, Okay, um, you have that on a coffee cup, likely about. That's really cool. That's really cool. Um, Okay, tell you what. So, I am coming to decision point here. Um, It is late. We have gone on for as long as, a, a, as a, a class session should go on. Those of you who have been with me in the Mythgard Academy before know that I will sometimes take the bit in my teeth when it's the last session, the planned last session, and just finish, even if I'm finishing until 1 in the morning uh, East Coast time here. Um, but I think I'm not going to do that this time. I think I'm not going to do that this time because I, I want to make sure that we get a chance to uh, to talk about the translation scene, which we're getting to here in just a second, which is one of my favorite parts of the book. Um, and also uh, the timing actually works out next week. I can do next week. Um, I kind of had that buffer week sort of built in in case I needed it. Um, so um, I, think, uh, I think I'm going to, do- rather than pushing through and uh, speeding my way through the last because uh, there are still several slides to go, at least seven or eight. Um, uh, I want to, I want to, I wanna, uh, let's, let's give it a, a chance. So let's, let's do another session. Why not? It's not against the rules. Uh, one thing that I will mention about that, though, we're not going to be able to use the exact same link because I can't add a session after the last session has begun. So I'm going to have to create a new, link we'll post that um and we'll i'll make sure that that gets to the um that that gets to the web page but um uh you'll have to you'll have to to go to the mythgard.org uh web for out of the silent planet to get the new link for our final session so um yeah yeah all right um so one more week, exactly. Just like the old days, uh, just like the Silmarillion, uh, uh, the Silmarillion seminar days, uh, uh, that's what's going to happen. We'll do, uh, uh, we'll do one more week. Um, and, yeah, John, I will tweet the link out as well. All right. Very good thanks everybody and i, I will we'll, we'll we'll do this next week uh one last time uh so thanks everybody uh and i will see you guys next week and some of you hopefully i will see in houston this weekend for text moot uh looking forward to that hoping i can make it down okay we're supposed to be having some snow and ice issues up here uh in new hampshire uh like this week the end of this week here um hoping my flight will be able to get off in time so uh, we'll see. But anyhow, um, off we go. Thank you, everybody. Uh, and I'll see you guys next week. Bye now. The Mythgard Academy has been offering in-depth discussions of awesome books and films since 2013, completely free to attend and free to download. If you've enjoyed our discussions and would like to help them continue, please consider donating at signumuniversity.org slash fund.